the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Michelle Tafoya podcast. James Lindsay. Some of you may have heard of him. Some of you may have not. We're going to introduce you. He's got a book called The Marxification of Education. He's got some brilliant stuff out there. You're hearing it more and more right now as we're seeing all of this anti-Semitism coming out of colleges, universities, even high schools. And are there Marxists in the classroom? I think many of us would probably go, uh, yeah, he's going to tell us because he's written a lot about it. James Lindsay, the author, is next. It's time for the Michelle Tafoya podcast. James Lindsay, welcome. I, I always like reading how people present themselves on Twitter. It's almost like they're writing their own tombstone notes while they're still alive. And yours says, James Lindsay, Woksetta Stone, which I love. By the way, you can follow him at Conceptual, ja uh, Conceptual James. Pro-America, anti-communist, based AF. And uh, you're at newdiscourses.com, which is a tremendous website if people haven't been there. So thank you for joining us. I know you've been at a couple of conferences. What is it people are asking you about these days based on the fact that you wrote The Marxification of Education? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I used to get asked a lot what's going on. And now I feel like uh, people are kind of getting a sense of what's going on, whether this is a I, I think that they have the sense that something's badly wrong in America and, and across the West. But some of them are, are much more dialed in and realize that what we're dealing with is a cultural revolution, kind of like what happened in China in the in the 60s. And so the question, what they're asking me now, kind of two things. One is, um, what do we do about it? And then another is, what resources are there for young people in particular? What would you recommend for a high school student or a college student to read? Where would you go to kind of, you know, get them informed on what's happening? Because I think people are also realizing that the generation under 25 years old right now, 15 to 25, is kind of a crucial generation to influence and wake up to what's happening around them. How optimistic are you that that is not only happening, but can be successful before it's quote unquote too late? I actually am very optimistic. I've seen how fast the general population has started to wake up. I've seen how much suspicion there is of kind of these large entities. You know, CDC would be one, for example. The World right. Health Organization would be another. The United Nations. The amount of skepticism that has arisen very, very quickly, just in a matter of a couple of years, uh, that many of the problems that we face are not just happening, that they're actually coming from agenda items being driven from these kinds of organizations, that the media are lying to us, that they're distorting the, the facts, that we're being propagandized. The amount of skepticism has been amazing. And I don't think it's going to be as hard as people are afraid that it is to transfer that information to younger people. And once we're informed, it's it's much easier to start taking effective action. So I think that figuring out what to do, there are a lot of smart people who are catching on to what's happening, especially in the, the last few weeks. A lot of money is getting redirected uh, very quickly. And so I'm actually pretty optimistic. It's a, it's a very challenging time, though. I don't think that the next couple of years is going to be a smooth ride by any by any means. But I think that we have every reason for optimism in the longer term. 
Well, you know what? I can get on board with that. I, I've got energy to give for the next however long. Uh, I want to be part of that process, part of that solution. I have a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old. And yesterday they attended an assembly where one of their fellow students gave a speech sort of defending uh, the Palestinian side of things. And when we had dinner together <laughs> last night, both the 15 and the 18-year-old kind of said, what did you think about the speech today? Neither one of them liked the speech. Um, that that gave me hope. We do what we can here as parents. But you you said you've been asked by other people, what can people direct their kids toward, you know, whether they're in high school or, or heading off to college? What kind of resources are there, James? Because I, I think I think people really are yearning for that. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the kid. Uh, I have if I'll shill my own book, I have a book uh, a lot of people read called Cynical Theories from a couple of years ago that was adapted to a younger uh, a younger audience or a younger reader level audience called and the book is called social injustice for an adult a smart adult it's a five hour read for you know a smart high school kid it's probably like a six or seven hour read yeah. it's not heavy on the academic citations but it breaks down in a very kind of soft way the cynical theories was written from a center left perspective on purpose the book Social Injustice retains that. So that's one resource that I've produced for, well, I've kind of helped produce. I didn't do the remix for younger audiences, but that I've helped produce for um, that age group. But I encourage them to read, uh, for example, there's a new book called Mao's America by Shi Van Fleet. That's very accessible. She wants young people to read it. It's yeah. brilliant. It explains that this is a cultural revolution like she lived through in China. I encourage people to read that. A lot of kids have read the kind of horrible books documenting what happened under the Nazis. Well, there's a very clear book that I don't think is hard. It's just long called Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism by Robert Lifton. It was written in the 1960s, documenting the horrors under Mao's China and the parallels to diversity, equity, inclusion, and all of the kind of things that they're experiencing in their lives are pretty undeniable. If you go into it with that lens affixed, you can see very quickly the parallels, cancel culture looks like struggle sessions and so on and so forth. And it's really kind of an eye opener to understand what communism looks like when it's put into practice. And so I recommend those kind of books to really smart young people. There's another book by a woman. These are all kind of academic for like younger kids, but <clears throat> there's a book called uh, The Weaponization of Loneliness by Stella Morabito, a former CIA analyst. And it explains how tyrannical movements in general or totalitarian movements create and weaponize a feeling of loneliness, which I think a lot of our young people are experiencing. And it'd be very helpful for them to see you're being made to feel lonely by being forced to lie about what you believe so that you don't feel like you've connected to anybody else. And again, this has parallels, whether it's under Oliver Cromwell's Puritans, whether it's under the French Jacobins, whether it's under the Bolsheviks in Russia, under Mao Zedong in China, you see these exact same parallels. So I encourage all of that. I also encourage them to get involved uh, with, if they don't want to get involved in the organization or Turning Point USA, start looking at their, their materials at least. Turning Point USA puts a lot of effort into producing education materials for that age group. Um, and I'm encouraging people right now as broadly as possible to start making more and more material for that age category. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. 
Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Yeah, it's so important. And Prager, you is the same. We had G. Van Fleet on this show, and I found her so compelling. And, you know, she's got a, a significant Twitter following. And I, and I just, I, it's, it is amazing to me how if people can't see it, I don't know how they can't. Because to me, it's very, very clear. What's interesting is, I, I always think, to, when did the seeds really get planted here in America? Because there are a lot of conflicting opinions about that. Some people think as early as the 1920s, those seeds began being planted. Um, and, and I just, the other part I can't get my head around, and this is maybe where my naivete or my Pollyanna outlook gets in my way, but I don't understand why someone would want to take the freest country on earth and change it. Uh, it's 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 got to be outside forces but some people inside are allowing this to happen to what end what do they think is better than what we have well <clears throat> what they think is better is the overcoming of all oppression that they can imagine in other words as stella morbido explains in her book uh, weaponization of loneliness what 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 you're dealing with is people who are actually pathological they're involved in narcissistic self-worship on a very profound level so rather than deal with the challenges of life as they come and as they are, they want to rearrange the challenges of life to suit them and their personalities because they're the most important thing in the universe, hence the self-worship. I just watched a video of a young woke woman getting arrested for drunk driving, driving the wrong way in traffic. It went on Twitter kind of viral this morning. And she's saying she's arguing with the cop, you know, that she has all of these excuses. She's non-binary. She's indigenous. You know, she has PTSD and anxiety and she's afraid of cops and she's blah, blah, blah. She's afraid of white people. And for all these reasons where she shouldn't be arrested. And it's just this desire to rearrange reality around your own whims. I think that that's why people want to transform it. As for the seeds, there were seeds. I don't know. I mean, we're in it. We're going to go deep into stupid metaphors here, but maybe <laughs> it was more that in the 20s, they tilled the soil and tried to plant some seeds that didn't really take. Okay. There was a lot of infiltration of the communism into the United States from starting in 1919 is when the CPUSA started in the U.S. And um, we know that there was a lot of communist infiltration because of the work of people like Senator Joseph McCarthy, who was rooting it out in the 1950s. I think he did a lot of damage to the movement at the time, but it was embedded in things like Hollywood and media and uh, <clears throat> increasingly in education. But the real seeds that we're dealing with today, the seeds of woke, were actually planted unambiguously in the 1960s. And it doesn't matter how you want to cut it, whether it's in education, whether it's in, in you know, infiltrating the, what they call the long march through the institutions, which got its name in 1966 from a radical named Rudy Deutschke, which was implemented by radicals after Herbert Marcuse called for it in his 72 book, Counter-Revolution Revolt. It's very clear that this generation in the 1960s were all inspired by Mao and the successes Mao was having in his revolution in China. Uh, Paulo Freire, who designed the education system that we now implement across the West in order to do brainwashing, attributed his methodology to Mao. Herbert Marcuse derived his, his basic formulas 
uh, whether it's identity politics, whether it's the criticism and, and, and uh, problematization of all things, whether it's uh, the repressive and liberating tolerance dichotomy that he laid out in 1965, he, re- he attributed all of this to the success of the revolution, these tools in the revolution in China. The saying in the 60s, the chant was Mao Mark, uh, Marx Mao Marcuse. So these three Marxists, Marx himself, and then but Mao Zedong is right there in the middle being facilitated into the West through uh, Marcuse. Turns out all of intersectionality, really, we could, if we wanted to lay the blame on a single person, Marcuse's student, Angela Davis, who's very famous to this day, kind of brought a lot of those ideas that were extremely Maoist into the forefront of identity politics into what was called the black feminist movement at the time. Intersectionality falls out of the black feminist movement. It reproduces Mao's identity politics that he used to control China and take over China with the good categories and the bad categories in an overwhelming, um, what's the right word? I want to say pressure pump uh, to drive people from the unacceptable, deplorable identities into the acceptable revolutionary identities. We see this with, you know, certain identities, white, straight, male, et cetera, are, are tied to all kinds of evil. But you can, you know, exonerate yourself by becoming a revolutionary queer identity, which nobody can question because it's completely subjective. And you see this powerful uh, incentive structure to join the revolution that's particularly effective on young people that's being flooded into the schools through the education method produced by another Maoist thinker. And so what we where this the seeds of what we're dealing with now really came from are the 1960s which went heavily into education at all levels in the 1970s and finally kind of were able to get the plane off the ground. I think in the 1990s is when is when that really uh, got successful for them. So, I mean, there's a very clear and straightforward academic and intellectual lineage that was informing the activism uh, earlier attempts from the 1920s, notwithstanding. Right. So if they want to emulate what Mao did. I mean, the the repercussions were that people were dying all over the place. So maybe a hundred million. Yeah. I I don't, how does that get ignored in this effort or, or is it? Well, the usual thinking is that Mao had it mostly right, but missed some of the important details that therefore led to the deaths of a hundred million or more people. Oops. But they definitely do support Mao. And I have the firsthand experience with this. I was recently, a few months ago, asked to speak at Northwestern University, which is an elite college, and it was heavily protested. The student government paid for people to protest against my speaking, the college Republicans and... uh, if I'm in YAF chapters there at the college had me come. And so I spoke at Northwestern and they let all the people in that wanted to hear. And then they opened the doors to the protesters to fill the rest of the seats and kind of standing room in the back. And so, I don't know, 60 to 80 of the protesters wearing their masks and everything else came in and heckled and jeered and carried on. But the specifics of my talk that I gave were designed, was designed to explain intersectionality. And I wanted to explain that it is, American Maoism. It's just a derivative of Mao. So I talked a lot about Mao, kind of a history lesson of Mao. This should be a very non-controversial talk, but these exactly. they yelled and jeered and carried on. But when I, when I said that Mao was doing things like rounding up landlords and rounding up bad elements, and as they were called, and, and counter-revolutionaries and right-wingers, the woke kids in the room cheered. They clapped, they cheered, they hooped, they hollered. Um, there's even a young Chinese girl in the room whose family had been murdered in, in large proportion by Mao 
who was aghast to find out this is how her her, her fellow uh, schoolmates think, but they were excited about the fact that that what they're participating in is Maoism. So I reminded them at the end to great jeering and making making fun of me while I spoke that uh, what happened with the Red Guard, which is what they effectively are in the West today, is that once Mao consolidated his power again in 1967 at the end of the year, by early 1968, he put out a declaration that the Red Guard had become too radical and too left and too dangerous, and he sent the People's Liberation Army after them, rounded them up, sent them to the countryside to die, or killed them in the street if they refused to go. Now, this turned out not to be a big problem because most of them were so brainwashed at that point that they would willingly get into the the trains to the countryside or the trucks to the countryside saying that work in the field, work as a peasant would make their brains even more red. And they were enthusiastic to basically go die in primitive conditions, which is what most of them did. Um, and I, I told them that this is their future, that they are the red guard or the rainbow guard, as it were, or the green guard, depending on if it's LGBT or whether it's uh, the environmentalist sustainability yes. stuff that they're hooked into. And they laughed. And I said, I don't care if you want to laugh. I'm right. And you need to hear it. This is your future. If you yeah. win, you lose. I'm so glad you're doing this. Um, you know, Barry Weiss of the Free Press, who I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, and she's been doing some great work, recently wrote a piece on getting rid of DEI, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. And and yeah, the, I, I've getting rid of it. Yes, I, it, I the the beginning of it, the initiation of it, the implantation of it to begin with drove me nuts. I. Do you think that people are starting to see and corporations and universities are starting to see how damaging this movement is? Yeah, finally, they are. Um, <clears throat> what they don't fully realize yet, though, I've been going around and uh, spreading the word as far as I can, as widely as I can. I think I've given almost 30 public lectures in the last two months or something like this across literally the world at this point. Um I'm trying to get them to understand that the implementation of diversity, equity, and inclusion is in fact the installation of a, of a softer form of what Mao installed in his prisons in order to affect thought reform. Uh, that is what the goal is. Equity is the goal of DEI. Equity's definition is an administered economy in which shares are adjusted so citizens are made equal. So it's socialism. Diversity and inclusion are the two excuses for bringing in interrogators, that's diversity, people who count as diverse. I just read this in an American Medical Association document last night. Um, people who are considered diverse are people who understand what it means properly to occupy a position of an underrepresented or marginalized group. In other words, they have a critical consciousness. So they're political officers. And then inclusion is that anything that insults or offends those highly motivated to be insulted and offended people needs to be excluded in order to create a condition of inclusion. This merely reproduces Mao's uh, formula that he used to consolidate power in the 1940s and then to transform China through the 1950s and 60s, which is what he called unity criticism unity. Uh, and he says that you, you start with a desire for unity, then you criticize those elements that are making it impossible to form a, a proper unity so that you can have a new unity on a new basis. The wording for that today is a little bit different, but the theme is the same. We just want to create a campus or an institution or a workplace. We just want to create a place where everybody feels like they belong. But we've got many problematic elements like racism and transphobia that are preventing us from feeling everybody feeling like they belong. And if we get together on this, then we can have a new unity on a new basis that's called a sustainable and inclusive future. And it's very clearly just a reproduction of the same thing. So if you read that book I mentioned, which is uh, 
Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism by Robert J. Lifton, it becomes extremely clear that the DEI apparatus in workplaces and schools and universities, the entire kind of political officer structure and what it does in practice is that it creates the conditions of Mao's brainwashing prisons. But you're not in prison in the in the classical sense. You're just chained to your job. You're chained to the desire to get your degree. So you're actually voluntarily, in some kind of twisted sense, signing up for your own brainwashing so that you can earn a living, so that you can get a diploma. Right. And but but the program's the same. And this is this is what they've been installing with very uh, flowery and and language filled with bromides and all of this. Oh, it sounds so nice and good. We just yeah. want a belonging place where everybody feels included. Yeah. But for a communist, what it boils down to is communism is not included until it's the only thing there. And so you have to just continue to get rid of non-communist elements and include more communist elements. And that's the entire logic of inclusion. What what freaks me out, for lack of a better term, about all of this is that I know some very bright people, very well-educated, very successful people who buy into this, who mm. uh, talk about microaggressions as the biggest problem in the workplace or in schools. Yeah. Um, these are not dumb people. They're ideologues for sure. But I'm just so unclear on, you've used the word brainwashing. I, I, I guess I can accept that. It's hard for me to understand how really smart people can get cannot see through this stuff. No, no, no. High intelligence is a higher liability for this kind of an ideological movement. And I'll tell you just on the word microaggressions, a lot of people don't know where that originated. A lot of people have heard maybe of Daryl Wing Sue, who wrote the book about it and think that this is where it came from in 2008 or whatever that book was written in critical race theory. Turns out, no, it actually came from a guy named Chester Pierce, who was a CIA agent that was involved in the MKUltra project. In fact, he was one of the two or three agents involved in the MKUltra project that was involved in the killing of the elephant by overdosing it on LSD to see how much LSD uh, an elephant could tolerate. And uh, turns out he's the inventor of the concept of microaggressions. He also was a consultant to the television show Sesame Street for a number of years, which is makes that Snuffleupagus character kind of concerning, um, given his background and history. But that's just a kind of an aside. Intelligence, it turns out, um, I don't buy into everything that, that the psychologist Jonathan Haidt says, but Jonathan Haidt wrote a you know, a series of brilliant books, The Happiness Hypothesis, The Righteous Mind, and so on, especially The Righteous Mind, outlining this idea of post hoc rationalization. So you have other reasons why you adopt positions or falsify your preferences, and then you rationalize why you've done that. And I'll come back to the, to the first part in a second. Smart people are better at rationalizing their commitment to an ideology. They're better at making a set of excuses that say, no, this is why it is, or this is why your your uh, counter evidence is not sufficient. And so smarter people are a greater liability. They're actually easier to propagandize, especially uh, people who have gone through kind of this rigorous professional training through colleges or whatever that are largely conformity experiments. Um, the people who make it through are the ones who are the most conformist. But being smart allows you to rationalize better. So why are they getting it caught up in the first place? Well, against being really intelligent turns out not to be an advantage here. They're caught up for social and emotional and psychological reasons. They've learned to see themselves as good people by adopting these views. But most importantly, that's reinforced through the social environment that they find themselves in. Other good people, other professionals, other people in their circles all ad 
adopt these views. And everybody knows on a certain level that to speak out against this is to lose, I think, as my friend Michael Schellenberger said the other day in one of these conferences, that he lost 90% of his friends. I think I lost 98% of mine. <laughs> Again, I come back to the idea of the weaponization of loneliness. People know that they're going to be ostracized by this group of people who are holding false beliefs. If you read Lifton's book, you find that most of the people don't actually fully believe all of the beliefs, but they think everybody else does. So nobody will voice doubts and they'll viciously attack it. The first person who voices doubts mm -hmm. because that protects them from being seen as somebody who also doubts. It's a very exquisite psychological process and social process. And so basically what you have is a lot of very smart people who don't have very secure social networks around them who are nervous about losing the fragile social networks around them. Academics are probably the most insecure socially uh, writ large of any of these groups of professionals. And they have this idea that if they, or the, this circumstance that if they profess these obviously absurd beliefs, they get to stay in the good graces of their social group and they get to see themselves as good people as opposed to those awful, deplorables, bad elements, domestic extremists, you know, right-wing lunatics, whatever it is that the, the word happens to be that they use to demonize the enemies of the people, and they see themselves as the virtuous good and in, in, in opposition to the, to the evil bad. And it's really not more complicated than that. But smart people are actually at a liability here. Their, their intelligence allows them to rationalize their bad decisions better than normal people. Well, I'm glad I'm not that smart then. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm, a I'm a little more normal. I think I'll keep it in check. Uh, I could talk to you for hours. I, I really hope people will read The Marxification of Education and every other book you listed, folks. You heard them. So just rewind, listen again, write down the titles, write down the authors, read this stuff. Uh, it, 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 and just listen. This is it's it's striking uh, that. But I, I, I am buoyed by your hope and your optimism that that this massive ship is starting to turn around and I'm going to play as much a role as I can. And I encourage everyone else to, to join in that effort in any small way that they can. James Lindsay, you can find him at conceptual James on Twitter, James Lindsay woke set a stone. I just love it. New resources dot, or excuse me, new discourses.com. My eyes are hurting me newdiscourses.com. You got to check it out. It's fantastic. I'm so grateful you spent some time with us today. I hope we can do it again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. He is James Lindsay. I'm Michelle Tafoya. As always, be brave, have some courage and do good. Not in the virtue signaling department, but just a little bit of good here and there to counteract the evil. And we'll see you next time. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.